My name is Anna Oberi. I'm Johanna Tilkanen. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. In November 2020, the UK is hosting the annual UN Climate Change Conference, also known as the Conference of the Parties, where politicians and experts from across the world gather to cooperate on addressing the threat of climate change. Since the 2015 edition, global cooperation on climate change has come under strain. At the same time, the need for urgent action in the face of global climate emergency is becoming more evident day by day. 2019 saw large-scale public demonstrations across the globe, from Greta Thunberg's Fridays for Future student marches to the Extinction Rebellion protests here in London. In this podcast, we're exploring the opportunities to revive global action on climate change and asking how different states are looking to shape the climate agenda in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow. Hello and welcome back to The Climate Briefing, where we've not been taken off the air, which is quite reassuring. Um, We've got an episode two, and it's a great episode. I'm joined in the studio by my colleague Johanna. How are you doing? Hello. I'm good, thank you. Anna's not with us this week, but she'll be back for the next for the next episode, we hope. And uh, yeah, so we've just finished our recordings. I think they went really well. Hope you hope you enjoy listening to them. And we have just also finished our second briefing event yes. of the series. So could you tell me a bit about what that event was like? Yeah, so we had our second discussion on the COP26 diplomatic briefing series, which was on climate ambition in Europe and its potential global impact. And we had a great panel. Yeah. We had Jacob Worksman, who is the principal advisor to the Directorate General on Climate Action at the European Commission. We had Imke Lübbege, who is the head of EU Climate and Energy Policy at the WWF European Policy Office. And we had Simon Petrie, who is the head of International Climate Strategy Europe for the UK Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, and Jen Austin, who's the policy director for We Mean Business Coalition. And so after the event, you spoke to uh, Imke Lubicke. What did you talk about with her? So the EU has set itself a target of becoming climate neutral by 2050. They also introduced the European Green Deal, which is at the centre of the climate neutrality target. So we were exploring what the target and the Green Deal actually mean and what those also mean for the rest of the world. And and what did you talk about with Jen? So with Jen, she comes from the We Mean Business Coalition. She's a mm-hmm. policy director there. And basically, we looked at the question of climate action in Europe, but also the rest of the world from the perspective of businesses and corporations who are approaching this at a different, from a different angle, should we say. So we spoke about how businesses have been engaging with the COP process, the ambition loop between policymakers and businesses in terms of the targets that they set themselves for climate action, and also what impact things like the consumer in their sort of everyday spending can have on climate action through affecting how businesses structure themselves. Excellent. Yeah, well, let's have a listen. So I'm here with Imke Lübbege, who is the head of climate and energy team at the WWF European Policy Office. Imke is a European policy and advocacy expert with more than 15 years of experience. Thank you for joining us today, Imke. Thanks for this introduction. Just a 
quick word about WWF, European Policy Office. So we are an office based in Brussels and we observe and try to influence the policies uh, designed by uh, the European Commission and then decided by the European Council, Council of Ministers and the European Parliament. And we try to improve the integrity, the environmental integrity of those proposals. We cover areas like marine and fisheries, forest, water, agriculture, and all land use related questions, and also finance and investment policies, as well as climate and energy, for which I am responsible. Excellent. Today we are going to be talking about climate action in Europe and climate policies. So the EU has recently set itself a target of becoming climate neutral by 2050. And I was wondering if you could explain to us a bit more about this and what does this uh, target mean? The EU has set this long-term goal, basically 30 years from now, meaning to decarbonize the economy and societal activities by in all sectors, meaning we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions as much as we can do that. And we increase as well the removals of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. This means the net. So we we won't be able to reduce all our emissions, but we will be able to, if we increase the removal, to get to a net zero emissions objective if we include, as said, all sectors of our economy. The newly introduced European Green Deal has been presented as the way to achieve this target. Could you tell us a bit more about the Green Deal and what it entails and how does it link to the 2050 target? The European Green Deal is a result of many actors pushing for higher environmental integrity and climate action over the past years. Just to remember the youth movement, people on the street calling for action because we feel the impacts in all countries of the EU. With the European election in May 2019 and the new commission Uh, nominated by the European Council, so the heads of states, a new mandate for this five-year term has been agreed and elected by voters. And it came out that no majority could be formed without a strong commitment to a net zero goal. So all Spitzenkandidaten from all parties committed to do that, to actually commit themselves to making it an objective of the EU activities. And that was great. That is very, very good. And that is one of the key elements of this European Green Deal. But it's it's not the only element. Climate is as at the forefront and the net zero objective drives and should and need to drive all our policy actions in the sense of making our policy actions coherent so that industry decarbonizes, that agriculture 
reduces its emissions, but also functions as a source or, or removals, uh, the uptake, increasing the uptake of removals, uh, that our energy sector moves to clean energy and reduces energy consumption. So all these sectors need to contribute. And that's at the heart of the European Green Deal. But we have more elements. And these other elements are, for example, the di a diplomacy track trying to increase, improve the role of the EU at a global level. That obviously includes uh, climate diplomacy, that uh, includes working on trade, improving our multilateral basis and agreements, working with bilateral partners, Uh, making sure that our goals and objectives on environment and climate resonate in other countries and we can find ways of working together. There is another element uh, in this European Green Deal, which is a climate pact. And this is aiming to bring in people and citizens to the decision-making process, but also to an exchange which then informs the decision-making process. So creating a platform which allows to learn from experience from EU policies and how they resonate in regions for people, how they play out, and to create a learning and mutual exchange with the EU policymakers. And from your perspective, are the EU's long-term climate target and the Green Deal ambitious enough or is there more needed? I've talked about the concept as it has been presented from Ursula von der Leyen, the new commission president. But we all know the concept doesn't mean this will be our reality. So a lot has to be done to make it reality. And we need to see whether it delivers the systemic transformation we are asking for. So we need an economy-wide transition to low carbon. We need, uh, and for that to happen, we need policy coherence. We can't afford to waste our money by taking decisions which do not fuel into reaching this objective. We are worried that this policy coherence is not delivered. Just last week, we have seen that the European Parliament voted on the fourth uh, projects of common interest list, and that includes 32 gas projects, which is worth 29 billion. And this is investment which we don't need in Europe. We have sufficient infrastructure on gas. We have a lot of possibilities and options to transition to a clean energy system. And we need to put our money there. So policy coherence, meaning providing the right incentives and not wasting our money, sticking to the old uh, fossil-based system, that will be really, really important. And we know time matters. So for the Commission to come up with consistent approaches is really important to see a good result. But also reminding us the Commission is proposing legislation, but we need the political support from the European Parliament and from the European Council, uh, the Council of Ministers. So the political will from member states to make it a real Green Deal is very important.
So the EU is also expected to update its nationally determined contribution under the Paris Agreement this year. So what are the expectations for this and what might this mean for the COP26 this year? The EU has promised to take action to increase its NDC and Ursula von der Leyen committed to increase it to 55% in comparison to 1990 emissions levels. That's an increase. We currently have a target of reaching at least 40% reduction by 2030. And it's good uh, that the EU wants to increase its national determined contribution. It's very important this year that the EU shows this leadership and that we get the leadership early on. We, the EU has a role to, to take real leadership, to show it's acting, to show it's committed and to inspire others. And that can only be done if the EU does it early on. So we actually think autumn is much too late for that. That's the first concern we have. So if European Council decides that in October, that's too late. Other countries uh, need to be inspired by the EU. And that means we need to have something as early as possible, but definitely before the summer break. There is a second point. While acknowledging that politically it is a challenge to get everybody on board for the higher emissions reductions target, we all need it's a lot at stake. And the 1.5 pathway um, limiting temperature increase global warming to maximum 1.5 degrees, we need to act very quickly and with very sharp reductions. And just the UN Global Emissions Gap Report, which shows the current emissions in relation to what science demands us to do, there is a huge gap. We would need to increase our target to 65% emissions reductions instead to 50 or 55%. That is a translation to 7.6% emissions reductions annually in Europe. And that means stepping up more than the EU wants to do and is planning to do. Uh, and therefore, WWF, as a science-based organization, uh, views the European Green Deal as not ambitious enough. And from your perspective, what do you think are the particular opportunities, but also challenges in Europe for increasing climate ambition? As mentioned, it's a political will which will decide um, how much the target, to, to which level the target will be increased. But also, it's a question of how we can convince and manage the transformation we need. We have seen that the just transition mechanism just proposed on the 14th of January by the European Commission is and a key enabler for this transition to happen, which means acknowledging the challenges for people on the ground, acknowledging the challenges for business, for government to manage that we actually move out of coal while needing to offer other opportunities for these people, not leaving them unemployed, but allowing them to 
build up their future. And that means we have to have all hands on deck. It doesn't mean we need only money. It means we need to have a plan. We need to have the ideas, the knowledge, the ability, the willingness of people to change, to understand the challenge and to change. And very concretely to create opportunities for them. And the EU has made an important step, but I think we now lead, need to lead through and we need to get the buy-in from member states. And uh, this is one of the key challenges uh, we have to face. I think we, with regards to the transition in key sectors, uh, the energy sector, we have a very good business case for renewable energy and also energy efficiency. But more needs to be done. We need to further invest into research and innovation with a view of inspiring business and social innovation. So if we talk about innovation, we do not mean only technological innovation. We need it in some areas. But what we now need to for energy efficiency and also renewables to deploy is models of making it happen, models of understanding of how people, citizens come in, how they can get access to capital, how can they pay back investments, how we can deliver support for people who have not the means to invest, how can we actually get buy-in from tenants, you know, all these questions, they require also research and innovation at a different level to use the means we have to clean up our energy sector. A big challenge is also interest industry, but with good progress and a lot of willingness and engagement from industri industrial stakeholders. And we need to create lead markets and the right incentives to do to make that taking taking off. Uh, 2020 has been quite widely described as a critical year for climate. And you also mentioned urgency quite a few times. What are your hopes and worries for this year? And what do you think we should expect from COP26 later this year? We should expect a very strong agreement and holding on to the Paris Agreement while showing that countries are committed to do more and to take action and to to commit to targets and to implement those targets. This is my hope and WF's hope. We also want to see by the end of this year, climate ambition and climate action moving closer to biodiversity protection, meaning seeing the synergies and creating space for nature-based solutions, which are so obvious in some cases. And ecosystem restoration is the first thing to do. We need our ecosystems to function properly, to allow to adapt and to be more resilient towards extreme weather events. So I hope to see a COP which reinforces the power of multilateral agreements. I want to see big emitters stepping up and showing what they do and what they can do more. I want the EU to be very early and the UK very early on taking leadership and committing to do more because they have the means and they have the the responsibility to act given their 
part of the emissions in being uh, they are part of the emissions in the atmosphere, uh, also from the past. And I think we can make all that happen because we have very good economic cases and we have no option of doing nothing. We only see higher costs and uh, and threatening of humanity by climate impacts. So there is no alternative way to go and there is no reason to wait. I think, however, our worries are that the EU does not step up early enough to show its leadership and its really good intentions to make uh, to make it a success, to get all its member states on board and to to show and to grab the opportunities of such an early move. We are worried about the UK's internal politics hampering the humble role as well a chair needs to take with regards to not pushing national interests first, but leading on behalf of the global community. And I think that's that's something which we which we are a bit worried about, but hopefully to see efforts and good ways ahead in the next month from the UK COP lead. Thank you very much for the interview. Pleasure to have you. Thank you. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jen Austin. Jen is the policy director for the We Mean Business Coalition uh, and previously worked at the US State Department um, on climate policy around the time of the Paris Agreement and just afterwards. So, Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I just wondered if you could tell us, firstly, a bit more about the We Mean Business Coalition. Absolutely. So the Women Business Coalition is a global coalition of organizations working with leading businesses around the world that are taking action on climate and using those business voices to support ambitious policy in the policy space. So looking ultimately to use both activities of their own and throughout their supply chains and their voice in the broader conversation to drive decarbonization and help us achieve net zero by 2050. Obviously, in recent years, we've seen civil society action on climate change becoming a lot more prevalent. Uh, the debates are changing, the sort of the sense that this is an emergency becoming more accepted among the general public. Have we seen that reflected in the business sector? Yes, we have. And the two are interrelated. So certainly over the last five years, if you look at the trends among business action on climate, it's been growing extremely fast around the world. Starting you know, back five years ago when the Paris Agreement was coming together, that's around when we launched the Science-Based Targets Initiative, the RE100 campaign, and a few of the other corporate initiatives. There were a handful of companies then who were ready right. to make those commitments. We're now in a place we have nearly 800 companies committed to science-based emissions reduction targets through the Science-Based Targets Initiative. Almost 200 of those are aligned with 1.5 degree science to, to limit emissions to 1.5 degrees. The RE100 campaign, which is a commitment to power your global operations with only renewable energy, has over 100 companies committed. Some of those companies have already achieved their targets. Many are well on their way, and that's throughout their operations around the world. We've got corporate campaigns on electric vehicles, energy productivity, and increasingly heavy-emitting companies committing to all of those initiatives and recognizing that they, too, need to be a part of the story. So all of those are real signals of serious momentum in the corporate sector. The interplay between that and the growing call for climate action on the streets is also very real. And as 
You see, in, as you mentioned in recent time, you know, we've got more and more public support for climate action. That reflects into the corporate space quite directly around employees and the workforce. Okay. And so mm-hmm. CEOs, one of their most important jobs is to build a strong team. Mm-hmm. And very regularly, we hear CEOs saying that one of the reasons that climate is moving up the agenda, in addition to sort of the impacts that they're seeing on the core of the business, is that in order to recruit and retain top talent, mm-hmm. people want to be working for companies that they feel are doing the right thing on climate that are a part of the solution and certainly not continuing to be a huge part of the problem. And so that's a big motivator for the C-suite. And in terms of the changes that are being made, do you see that as merely a response to direction from policymakers and governments? Or are we actually seeing businesses kind of step out in front of that agenda in that sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit of both. And the two have an important interplay. And Mm -hmm. so certainly one of the things you hear most consistently from businesses is that they want policy that gives them clarity and confidence of the direction of travel of the economy. And so what businesses want more than anything else is policy certainty. And at a time when climate is a growing risk to them, they want ambitious policy, they want to know what it is, and they want to be able to move in that direction. And so the policy landscape has a significant impact on their ability to move quickly, confidently, and to sort of invest, especially over the slightly longer term, with confidence. That said, business also has a lot of agency. It has a lot of ability to innovate their spending. Of course, they're the experts in their sectors. And so as they are scanning the market and looking at risks and opportunities, they're often the first to see and then go and pursue what some of the innovation opportunities are, what the market creation opportunities may be for in a zero carbon economy. And so we kind of see that both are often pushing each other. And honestly, at any given time, sometimes the business sector is ahead and sometimes the policy ambition is a bit ahead. And so we call it the ambition loop, the sort of positive interplay between leadership on the corporate side, which demonstrates feasibility, helps people see the strong business case, helps drive innovation and actually develop solutions as one piece of the puzzle. That leadership and courage from the business side helps create support in the political space for policymakers to then move ahead with, again, even more ambitious and clear policies. Those clear policies help bring the rest of the market along and create conditions in which the leaders can keep forging ahead. It's a little bit of both. I would say uh, in 2020, at the beginning of 2020, we're in a place where, broadly speaking, the corporate sector is a bit ahead of many of the policymakers. And that's part of what makes this year so important. The countries of the world are supposed to come back to the table with updated nationally determined contributions. In many cases, the level of commitment among leading businesses is ahead of the level of ambition of those targets and some of the policies that stand behind them. It's another example of when and where the business sector is looking to countries of the world to take a courageous, ambitious step forward because that clarity will help them, again, continue to move ahead. This series is is partly about COP and the COP process. So I just wondered if you have a perspective on how businesses have engaged with that climate negotiation at the UN level. Yeah, absolutely. And so over the years, you know, there's ways in which they engage somewhat more formally in the process. And then I would say probably more influentially or more broadly ways in which business action and advocacy in the in the broader sphere mm-hmm. influence that process. You know, the COP itself is a series of multilateral meetings in which countries come together over time, hashing out agreements, often in a very, well, so far, basically negotiating some of the specifics of what that global framework will look like. 
since the Paris Agreement and then more recently the conclusion of the negotiations of the details of the Paris Agreement, some of the rules underpinning it, the entire world is kind of moving from a place of negotiations into implementation. Mm -hmm. The business community has been involved throughout. You know, I mean, at a very basic level, companies will interact with government officials as they're preparing for those meetings. And so, of course, you know, talking to them, helping make clear what their priorities are as they prepare for the meetings. Businesses have also participated in the meetings themselves. And so the UNFCCC has increasingly made space within and around the formal process for the voice of outside actors to be involved because it's business actors, other elements of civil society, local governments who aren't maybe part of the formal negotiations all need to be a part of implementing the solutions. And so starting to create space for that dialogue in and around the formal process is quite important. That's another issue that's actually up for discussion this year. The Paris Agreement created some space for what they call non-state actors, but non-national government representatives to be involved in the process. And now that we're five years on, and again, as I said, really moving beyond many of the details of the negotiations, there's a discussion ongoing as to how to make sure that the innovators and those who can be a part of the solution are engaged in those conversations and, frankly, that we help collectively move beyond what feels like a negotiation in which people are trading things off, you know, you do this, I'll do that, but actually moving forward into a place in which we're saying, how can we work together? And when you're trying to work together to create solutions, you need companies at the table, you need investors at the table, you need civil society at the table, and, of course, you need governments there. I think it would be fair to say that in some circles in the media or perhaps in sort of general sort of public opinion, there is occasionally a criticism of, of certain corporations to sort of say, oh, well, they're doing this because they're worried about the impact of their brand, uh, impact on their brand if they don't act on climate change. And I just wondered if you had a view on whether that was a valid criticism or a valid question to ask or whether actually your motivations shouldn't really matter as long as action is being taken. A little bit of both, I guess. It's absolutely a valid question to ask. Are these commitments genuine? Are they serious? And are they following through Mm. from a company perspective? At the end of the day, if they're committed and following through, I suppose I don't care too much about the motivations, actually. (laughs) Uh, But what you do want to make sure is that the criticism or the thing to be most careful about is that are they only talking the talk but not walking the walk? And so part of what we seek to do is align companies around a few campaigns that have external standards. And so the Science-Based Targets Initiative that I mentioned, for example, is essentially the gold standard of what emissions reduction targets should be. And it's a third-party methodology. They've crunched the numbers for different sectors in different parts of the world so that when a company sets forward a target, it's not just a company made this target up, it's pulling it from somewhere, and we all have to ask, is it good or is it not? By getting it validated by the Science-Based Targets Initiative, you can say that this target is aligned with what this company would need to do to be doing its part to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement. That's helpful so that when companies are putting forward targets, you know, is this just to look good or is this actually good? So that's super important. And then even once a target is good and is out there, 
we have to make sure, you know, it's it's reasonable for anybody to ask, okay, well, did you just tell me you're going to do that or are you actually following through? And we're at a place now, as I said, you know, now that there are hundreds of companies that have those targets, some of whom have been in place for a number of years, now is a perfect time to be making sure that companies are following through. We're seeing a lot of companies who are and who are achieving those targets, oftentimes ahead of schedule. As I said, in terms of renewable energy and electric vehicles, there are companies that are you know, well ahead of schedule on that. And as we've seen in the world, costs often are fortunately falling faster than we may have expected. Mm-hmm. The markets are moving quickly in some places. And so mm-hmm. there is a lot of progress from companies in terms of committing to targets, a lot of progress in terms of companies following through on those targets. But it's absolutely appropriate and important that they are held to a standard at which that's what the expectation is. And anything short of that, shouldn't be applauded. Now, the event that you were speaking at today at Chatham House was focusing quite a lot on Europe as the kind of regional focus. I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the sort of more global state of play. Have there been uh, areas of the world taking more action on this in terms of companies? Or like, is, is a lot of the action sort of concentrated in, in the West, in inverted commas, or are developing country, um, countries also sort of taking a sort of more active position? Yeah, it's a great question. We're seeing a lot of progress around the world. And so when we look at the We Mean Business Take Action platform, there's over a thousand companies committed to bold climate action. I think they're headquartered in close to 50 different countries around the world. Mm -hmm. And so there's significant spread there. There is certainly, you know, more of those companies are in Europe, in the U.S. There are a lot in Japan. There are quite a few in India. And Mm -hmm. so we're seeing a good spread there. Importantly, people often ask me this, but we continue to see action and increases in action and commitment in the U.S., despite the fact that the national government isn't pushing for climate action. And so the business case is strong enough that businesses are moving ahead anyway. We see a lot of action, as I mentioned, across a variety of sectors. And then quite importantly, the companies we work with are amongst the biggest companies in the world. And so the majority are headquartered in the U.S. and Europe, though, as I said, important, you know, sort of hundreds headquartered elsewhere. And then many have supply chains that are very global. And a science-based emission reduction target covers your global supply chain if that's where the bulk of your emissions are from, as is often the case. And so the impact of these targets is really quite global and is helping drive progress around the world. So obviously we're we're still talking at quite a high kind of macro level when we're talking about you know what what moves the CEOs making what policies they're bringing in in their own companies. But I was wondering, from a more kind of bottom up perspective, are we moving to a to a situation in 2020 and, and going forwards where consumers are making choices based on their view on climate change? And do you think that we'll see businesses having to respond to that a lot more than they perhaps previously have? Yeah, I think so. I mean, as you alluded to earlier, there's growing support in the public in terms everything from protests on the street to consumers talking more about climate and valuing climate more. I would say what what that translates to in some of the work that we've seen, you see more consumer-facing companies moving quickly mm-hmm. on climate. I would say, you know, broadly speaking, it's that companies are thinking more and more strategically about climate. They're moving it from an issue that is sort of a sideline issue in which used to be sort of more of an ESG-focused environmental and social governance-type issues being increasingly moved into sort of the strategy department or up into the C-suite. And that can be for a variety of reasons. Again, the more consumer-facing a company is, the more likely that public pressure is to weigh on them. Whether that means that consumers are ready to sort of pay more at the checkout counter 
I think, remains to be seen. And broadly speaking, you don't necessarily see people rushing to pay more on a transaction per transaction basis. However, the reality is that oftentimes these climate commitments made at a corporate level don't translate into necessarily a higher cost product at the till. And so that's a bit of a false dichotomy between thinking that like, okay, are companies feeling enough pressure from consumers who are willing to pay more at each transaction that they're going to go spend more to deal with climate. In fact, it's like a broader look at what is their company doing, who are they trying to appeal to and sell to, and then what are the risks of climate impacts to their ability to deliver those products or the opportunities in lower carbon innovation throughout their supply chain to allow them to deliver quality products at the price point that they need to be able to appeal to their consumers. And so it manifests a little bit differently in sort of a broader strategic question. And I think there's a real growing demand from consumers for companies to be doing the right thing on climate. Jen Austin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Appreciate the questions. We hope you enjoyed the interviews. And if you want to know more about the Diplomatic Briefing Series event we ran earlier today, you can also read the meeting summary on our website. So we'll be back next month with another briefing episode. If you missed the first one, it's still in your feeds. You can download it now. Please leave us a review if you enjoyed listening and tell your friends about us because it will make it a lot easier for people to find us. And remember, if you want to follow more of the work that Chatham House does on climate change and the environment more broadly, you can follow us on Twitter at ch underscore environment. Finally, we should just say thank you very much to the European Climate Foundation for supporting this series. We'll be back soon. Mm -hmm.